The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, August 10th, 2016 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I do not feel sorry for the Russian swimmer, Yulia Yufimova. But come on, we beat the poor woman in the pool, we beat her in the press, and we just crush her in the press conference. She's been banned for doping once, then banned again, but then unbanned because it was revealed she didn't have enough notice to stop taking her supplement that was newly banned. So she tried to explain this in English to a room full of English-speaking reporters asking questions in English. And a couple of seats away from her, there was American Lily King, who had won the gold. So I'm going to explain what uh, the Russian was saying here. She was saying, well, what if WADA, which is the World Anti-Doping Agency, banned a substance that you never thought was banned, then you tested positive? How are you the victim? All right, but here's the quote. Here's how she said it. Like, if WADA say, like, tomorrow, then some stuff like yogurt or L-carnitine or... I don't know, protein, what every athletes use. And they say tomorrow, now it's in bedding lease and you can drink. And you stop. But this is take out from your like body like six months. And then like doping control is coming like after like two months, they see you and you positive. This is your fault. And then she shoots this glare at Lily. Well, it's not as simple as she put it out there. I mean, she is lucky that her entire country wasn't thrown out of the games. But doesn't her anguish come through there? And by the way, the part where she says, stop like yogurt, or I thought she said air conditioning, but the official transcript says, or nicotine, or I don't know, protein that every athlete uses. So she's not doing so well. And then someone asks her, are you even happy you came here, you know, that you participated in the Olympics, had to put up with it? You get a silver, but are you, are you happy? So she puts her head in her hands and she sighs. And as she speaks, her eyes dampen and she says, I'm happy to be here. And for me, it's it's very hard. It's very hard to like swim like today. And uh, this is like three weeks, be like crazy. And you like just can't manage about like what I feel and now I feel like really happy because after everything like it's good time and it's best what I can do right now there is party going on right here it is celebration to last throughout the year woohoo raise the roof on the show today, I spiel about that time Trump made that joke and the Secret Service were all like, that is hilarious. Come with me, sir, with your arms working, Sam. But first, John Dickerson is here. He's making a stop in his quest to connect with the American people, to hear their concerns, and to return us all to prosperity. A whistle stop in every pot. So as I always wanted to say, about three minutes to showtime on the set on Sunday. Let's go, Dickerson. Nation ain't gonna face itself. <laughs> We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost her life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now.
John Dickerson is the moderator of CBS's Face the Nation. He's a panelist on the Slate Political Gab Fest. He hosts the podcast Whistle Stop. He is the author of the new book, Whistle Stop, My Favorite Stories from Presidential Campaign History. Oh, I've just been told he's been included in the Jonathan LaCroix deal. He will now be the seventh inning specialist for the Texas Rangers. John, you got enough on your plate? Yeah, I know. <laughs> My dance troupe has really suffered from I left out. There's there's another CBS podcast you do also. I do. I know. I do. A, I, I, I do you, a kind of a. I heard you bleary eyed <laughs> and froggy throated during every day of the convention. I think. Yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, it's a little the Face the Nation diary, which is um, which is good for just little riffs about something where you know because you got to be heard. Do they become something? You know, sometimes they. That's why I love them because it turns your perspective just enough that. Sometimes they are the beginning of something and then I go write a piece about it. Or sometimes it is I've written a piece and the piece has taught me what I think. And now that I know what I think, I can say this extra thing. And so it becomes the uh, kind of add on to the piece. Um, Or sometimes it's a notion I'm working out that works perfectly at four minutes and 20 seconds spoken and should go. (laughs) That's it. It's you've actually exhausted its entire life. (laughs) You have been doing the Whistle Stop podcast for a while and you turned it into a book. So you're drawn to the material. But by forcing yourself to immerse yourself in history, has that helped some questions you've asked uh, the two people? running or you know the 19 people running for president this time around i think because what it does is it takes you it forces you out of the moment to moment little tiny little fights which are sometimes about nothing Mm -hmm. in forcing yourself out of it and to think about what were big issues back in previous campaigns or character flaws of previous candidates you kind of refresh your own thinking there's a fertilization that takes place so i think it's been true for the question asking and also just the way you look at the campaign and think what's coming next, but also what should come next that isn't coming. And because it's not, what does that mean? So I th- it's been really helpful. And also it's actually psychologically helpful when this race feels like it's just kind of grinding and, and you kind of just want to escape. History is a nice thing to do. Of all the campaigns that you've looked back on and the ones that made it into the book or the podcast, obviously we're drawn to the ones like Wendell Wilkie. Here's a non-politician who got nominated. So the the resonances are there. The parallels are there. Or Andrew Jackson in 1824. But which ones are fascinating that actually you think are least relevant to today? That's a great question. I think so. For some reason, I'm, I'm landing on, on uh, 1948. Politics doesn't work like this anymore. 1948, Truman is way down. He goes to his own convention. And one of the headlines uh, in the papers is uh, talking about the Democrats. We're just mild about Harry. They just thought like Harry Truman is not going to do it. He's going to lose. They tried to get Eisenhower to run as a Democrat instead of Truman. So he's having he's going to have a horrible election in 1948. And, when he, and he gets on a train and takes three different trips and works his butt off, stopping in little town by little town, and it is the closest approximation of what we think of happening in campaigns, but what often doesn't, which is activity by the candidate moves voters. Those voters vote for the candidate who they originally were not going to vote for, and it changes the outcome of the election. We watch so much stuff in politics that doesn't have any right. any effect on the outcome of the election. And we, st- we say, oh, that's momentum, but it's often not momentum. It's just this the order of the states, that state favored Bernie, this state favored Hillary. It's not momentum, but Truman was momentum. Right, exactly. We're, you know, as human beings, we assign meaning to events before for our eyes and what a lot of good journalists and some of the data journalists journalism has taught us is you no know, not meaningful <laughs> even though it's happening before your eyes not meaningful um 
But in Truman's case, I think it was true. There was because I think the reason it was possibly true is there it happened over a long enough period of time that you saw lots and lots of articles talking about lots and lots of voters saying, gee, you know, he's not this distant guy in Washington. He cares about me. And because Truman worked it stop by stop with get, had a research, the first research really uh, weaponized research um, shop in a campaign giving him little bits of details of all the towns he stopped in. And then he could talk about how farm price supports would help that town or how, uh, you know, a new water project could help that town. And he connected policy to people's lives. And so I guess the reason I think that doesn't have anything to do with our current politics today is because nobody's listening to those speeches these days. And we also think that everybody's in their corners so much that 80, 80 plus percent of the electorate, they got their red or their blue jersey on. It's done. Whatever happens in the campaign isn't going to change their mind. We also think that we know we don't have to talk to the voter. The uh, campaigns don't really have to talk to the voters. We think we know what they know because of polls. And we kind of do. But t- you hearing you talk about Truman or reading the chapter on Muskie where actual journalists, Broder or Johnny Apple, are going out and talking to a, quote, a dumpy woman from behind a campaign counter. But these journalists talk to 100 people and they actually get a sense before any poll does where things are changing. And the candidates can probably do that too. It's more tactile than it is now. Right. I think there's still a place for those 100 conversations, not as a predictive necessarily, although it sometimes gives you, I mean, the Problem, two things. One, you can have a conversation and think, ah, this person has put their finger on something that is they've really explained a phenomenon we've kind of been dancing around. The other is you get an anecdote and you mistake it for the view of the world and 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 it can be misleading. But what I like about those conversations is they give they give you an understanding of the electorate. That just feels richer. And so you combine it with polling. I, I talked to this one guy in Oklahoma, and it was he was saying the reason he liked Chris Christie is because he was worried about the Walmarts. And I said, huh? Yeah. He said, well, the Walmarts, it's, anybody can go into one of those Walmarts. I mean, there's not much security. And he was worried about somebody going into Walmart and, you know, causing some act of mayhem. And he thought Christie was a tough, you know, guy who was going to keep the terrorists out. And, you know, you, we all know people are anxious, but that talking about his grandkids going to Walmart, that for me, just like now I have that guy in my head when I, when people talk about the anxiety in the country. So those conversations make me feel like I, I'm somewhat in touch with the, with the election in a way that it's hard to just through polling. All right. Of all the past campaigns that you've written about, can you put your finger to someone who ran a better campaign but lost for the presidency? Because it, it has to be. There has yeah. to be a case. Yeah. So I guess I got two. Okay. Reagan in 76 loses to Ford, ran a better campaign, was the first campaign in which we heard about the Reagan Democrats. So I guess Wallace 68, state chair in Texas, makes a commercial for Reagan in 76 in Texas. And this is the beginning of the Reagan Democrats. He finds them, turns them out in Texas, turns them out in other states. And then loses to Ford because he just can't build up enough delegates. And then Ford works the inside game and beats him. But I think most people would think at the finish line, as they're heading the finish line, Reagan was running the better race. Reagan lost the first five states and everybody was like, you got to drop out. You're just being a spoil sport. Kennedy's 80 challenge to, to Carter was a little bit more rocky. And Carter lost a lot of altitude over time as both the Iran hostage uh, situation caused him issues. And uh, and then there was just the total weakness of the economy. So it was not so much Kennedy's great campaign, although he ended it with a good speech, then it, then it was Carter's difficulty. But I think we can, I think Reagan 76 is not a bad one. How about um, Teddy Roosevelt when he was a bull moose? Huh. 
Yeah, you can, I mean, he'd become a bad campaigner. No, no, no. And, and I mean, it's just, it, you, you know, you have to take into account where the country is. Right. Like right now, the fundamentals are pointing for a Republican. Right, yeah. right, right, right. Yeah, no, that's true. And that was the campaign when he ran as a bull moose when he was shot and still carried on his speech. So, you know, that's uh, that we, we don't know. Ed, nobody else has done that. <laughs> that's uh, impressive. Yeah. So I've seen you say, I've heard you say that you like to work out a theory for every candidacy and also a theory for the election or an explanation the electorate where are you on that i'm 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 still working on the theory i think my theory is i mean and and at some point i feel like this is all obvious but people have participated in the last several elections and they've said uh we think the economic system is tilted towards uh, the wealthy or they say it's unfair or the american dream is dying once one variation of those things and they said i'm therefore going to vote for this person and then in the exit polls you ask them well, do you think that person's going to be able to solve the thing that you're most worried about yeah. and even before the person has a chance to disappoint them they say no we don't think the system will do it so but by the way they're i think they're right yeah, <laughs> yeah. so i think my theory is if you go to the drive through window you know, when you order a cup of coffee and they hand you a ham sandwich, the first time you're pretty irritated. Then you come through again and they hand you a suckling pig and they keep handing you more of the wrong thing. <laughs> you, you're going to like reach through the window and grab the person. And I think we're at the close to the reach through the window stage. Although in looking back in history, this is not 1968. You know, there is not smoldering blocks of, of cities uh, on the TV every night on the uh, on the evening news. I mean, 57,000 people died in the Vietnam War. Yeah. Okay, 57,000. And that was, I think that was the worst year. Yeah. So that alone. Right. I know there is a war going on now, but f we're talking about 57,000 versus the couple right. hundred who died last year. That's right. And where, where there was the draft and where you had riots where 40 you know, people would die. They had to call it the National Guard in Detroit. You had the assassinations of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy. I mean, you know, yeah. like yeah. Not, that's not going on now. My other theory of the electorate is that we're having it. And I don't know if this is always true. That we're having a debate about what turf this election is taking place on as much as we're having any debate about how to solve problems. So it's either Donald Trump's world or Hillary Clinton's world. There's not a vision of the world that's the same. We've got to attack the Soviets and shrink spending. And your plan for, for containing the Soviets is better than my plan or mine right. is better than yours on, on fixing the economy. It's like... Do you see Mar it's a Mars and Venus thing? I want to play an interview you did. You've had Trump on your show a lot. Here in this interview, this is about the time that he was taking on Judge Gonzalo Curiel. And I don't think the whole thing aired on Face the Nation. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I found the long version of it online. So here you are asking the first question. Let me ask you about what does the Mexican heritage of the judge in the Trump University case have to do with anything? I think it has a lot to do with it. First of all, I've, I've had terrible rulings forever. I had a judge previous to him. And now we'll cut his answer off because basically he just starts arguing the merits of the case. You come back with your college. Trump, what like does this have to do with no, no, his parents me. being from Mexico? No, no, How no, is no, that? Excuse me. Excuse, I'm confused. just saying we're getting terrible rulings. And again, he doesn't quite answer the question. And you, by my count, at this point, one, two, three. Four, five. Fair. He's not treating me fairly. And you think it's not because I've you think had, it's because of where his parents came. I've from. had numerous lawyers. Six times, six times, press him on that. Now you could probably do this a lot with uh, any politician who's evading. But what was your strategy, and why was it important to keep asking the question that way to get an answer? But why does his parents being from Mexico affect what you're saying? So. You're right. You can do that with any politician. And the the tension in any interview that uh, we do on the show is 
Every time you ask the follow-up, that is a repetition of the first question, you've just burned more time and you've killed a future question that might actually excavate something really interesting. So you're always doing that calculation. And a lot of times you decide not to do the follow-up, not because there's not a reason to ask a follow-up, but because you think you're going to get something more interesting and also more informative to the election. The election is not just about one little thing. And somebody could look at the Judge Curiel question and say, what does this have to do with my life? There are serious problems in America. What? But I think part of the Donald Trump story and part of holding him to account just as you would hold Hillary Clinton to account and why she continues to be asked, uh, you know, Scott Pelley's asked her a couple of times, will you promise never to lie or have you ever lied to the American people? It's because the, the answer has not been forthcoming. Because then it becomes a question of the of what we're learning about the candidate themselves. And in this case, he just wasn't answering the question. That's been true of many questions he hasn't answered. But in this case, it was uh, telling us something about the way he views Americans. It touches on a crucial American trait, which which is that we don't judge people by where their parents come from. And if he has a different view on that, he's talking about something that is at the center of the American uh, experience. So we just decided to kind of keep asking the question. And then I think in each of his answers, you got a sense of what he actually does believe. Yes. And this doesn't always work in terms of, you know, audiences say they want you to press candidates. But in the moment... When you watch an interview where somebody is constantly asking the same question over and over again, a lot of viewers, even those who are not Trump fans or politician fans of the politician you're questioning, will find it uncomfortable and not appealing to watch, even yeah. though they say you've got to hold their feet to the fire. Holding candidates' feet to the fire is actually not that pleasant for a lot of people to watch, and so they complain about it when you do it. Yeah. So they say elections are about the future. What about the future of this election? Will there be debates? Are you moderating a debate? I don't. I, they haven't announced who the debate moderators are. And and if I, if I am, it's news to me. I mean, there's no I'm joking because I don't think anybody knows anything. And not to tip your hand if you get the call. But what is the sort of thing in a debate with the, the only time that the two of them are going to be in the same room? What would you like to foster a dynamic where they talk to each other, do the thing where you say, ask each other a question? What sort of thing should we hope to get from that? I think what you want to do is get them engaged in a conversation. First of all, debates aren't, you know, you know, one guy interviewing two people, which is the way some people think of them. You don't want to set it up by saying, Mr. Trump, Mrs. Clinton has said this about you, Mrs. Yeah. Clinton. Because then you're just, you're like taking them out to the blacktop and saying, you know, have a schoolyard fight. But I think you want to, I think you want to figure out where, where they stand, not on the issues. We know what their issues, positions are, but walk us through the practical effects of your policies because A, that tells us something about what life might be like and B, it tells us if you thought about it yeah. and thought about how it would work. And that tells us something about how you would your mind operates as a president. It'll be fascinating when it happens. And maybe that will be the next chapter in the, I'm sure, soon-to-be-released paperback edition with an afterwards of Whistle Stop, John Dickerson's book, which is uh, contains his favorite stories from presidential campaign history. You know I'm from the political gab fest and face the nation. John, good talking to you. Mike, it's a real pleasure. Thank you.
I'm Dr. Megan Sachs. And I'm Dr. Amy Sloshberg. And we're the host of the podcast Campus Killings. Our show covers some of the most sinister crimes to take place on or around school campuses. Or the cases we discuss have a school-connected theme. And with the new school year comes an all-new second season of Campus Killings, which will debut on September 16th, 2023. But if you want to listen to Campus Killings now, you can binge all the episodes from season one. Available everywhere you listen to podcasts. And now the spiel. Remember that time when Donald Trump mentioned that maybe someone had shoot Hillary? Let's see. It was after the Iranian plane thing, the baby thing, the advice that if his daughter were sexually harassed, she should leave the profession, the cons, after that whole thing. But before whatever insane thing he says between the time I record this and you listen to it. Just a guess. This is based on an advanced algorithm. What he's going to say Next is that he will say that political correctness is preventing the U.S. gymnastics team from winning more medals. And he won't be wrong. But this, when he said that, I don't know, maybe the guys with the guns won't take kindly to Hillary Clinton. (sighs) This was in its own little category. Here's the actual quote. I know you've heard it. I know I've heard it. I know the Secret Service has now heard it and heard his explanation for it. Here we go. Hillary wants to abolish, essentially abolish... The Second Amendment. By the way, and if she gets to pick, if she gets to pick her judges, nothing you can do, folks. Although the Second Amendment people, maybe there is, I don't know. But but I'll tell you what, that will be a horrible day. So it seems pretty straightforward as far as threatening references go. The Second Amendment, that's the one about the guns, right? You know that. Well, it's also the one with the well-regulated militia that seems less relevant here. But because it is the one with the guns, it takes a little extra importance, right? This was not Donald Trump saying, and if Hillary's president, she might make you billet a soldier without your consent. I don't know. Maybe the Third Amendment people will have something to say about that. And that would be a horrible day. Of course, what I did is I came to a conclusion, and I guess we don't want our news media to come to conclusions, though they can make really heavy-handed inferences. Now, there were some in the news media, the straight news media, straighter than me. I'm straight, but I'm inflected with opinion. But Jake Tapper did it well. He really came to a similar conclusion, kind of couldn't believe it. But mostly the media did that thing the media does. Fox News led with the incident. They considered it an incident, but, you know, they called it a suggestion. He seemed to suggest today that Hillary Clinton should be dealt with harshly should she defeat him in November. ABC World News asked some questions. Breaking news, did Donald Trump cross the line? Well, since there is no agreed upon line, then yes, he did. Or no, he didn't. Or what line are you talking about? The one you're always getting wrong? Later, ABC's reporter repeated that line crossing idea but doing so in the continuous tense, so ubiquitous with people speaking on the TV. Tonight, Donald Trump accused of crossing the line in a dangerous way. Accused by whom? To CBS, it was that powerful cabal. He was accused by some. It was a remark that some took as a threat of violence against Hillary Clinton. But no one dealt with Trump's comments in a less straightforward way than the New York Times. I will read their lead graph in their lead story. Today's paper, Donald J. Trump on Tuesday appeared to raise the possibility that gun rights supporters could 
take matters into their own hands if Hillary Clinton is elected president and appoints judges who favor stricter gun control measures. That thing has more qualifiers than the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes. And I want to be fair to the media, and I want to be fair to Trump. I am fair to Trump. How fair? Let me tell you this. I kind of think that Trump did know that Russia invaded Ukraine and still controlled Crimea. I'd like to think that at least. Well, I'd like to think that they didn't take over Crimea. I'd like to think that Donald Trump isn't a major party candidate asked to deal with this situation. But I do think all he was saying is that if I'm president, Putin will go no further because I am a strong, strong man. And while I do think Trump was being, uh, I don't know, benighted boob, when USA Today asked him, what would you do if your daughter Ivanka were sexually harassed in the workplace? And he said, I would like to think she would find another career or find another company if that were the case. So that was about him. But I do think that his son, Eric, didn't give a good answer, but it might not have been the most horrible answer when he told CBS this. I think what you're saying is, you know, Ivanka is a, a strong, you know, powerful woman. She wouldn't allow herself to be, you know, objected you know, to it. And by the way, you should certainly take it up with human resources. And I think, you know, she she definitely right. would as a strong person. At the same time, I don't think she would allow herself to, to be subjected to that. And I think uh, I think that's the point he was making. And I think he, he did so well. I think he meant objectified. And I think you could hear that answer as him saying something like, she's a strong woman. She wouldn't stand for it. So I'm bending over backwards to be fair to the Trumps. And yeah, he was making a joke. He wasn't actually advocating that Hillary be shot, but he was making a joke about Hillary being shot because, you know, the Second Amendment, that is the one about the guns. Coming this fall to Kutcher's for one night only, the comedy stylings of Donald J. Trump. You'll love his pointed observation about politics. The Second Amendment people. Family. I love babies. Get that baby out of here. And Vladimir Putin. I hope the Russians hack us. I hope the Russians hack the DNC. All of those things were later described by Trump as jokes. So what's the reason that this joke is seen as in its own category? Well, it's starker, but it's also because of all that stuff I was mentioning up top. When Trump as a primary candidate, proposes a tax plan that's crazy, then changes key elements of it to a tax plan that's equally crazy, just in different ways, it stymies the media. It's hard for the media to give that context. And remarks about NATO require, I don't know, raising things about NATO's charter and mentioning Article 5. When Trump offhandedly says there's no proof Putin had any journalists killed, come on, it takes such a long time to explain why he's wrong. And then Trump's on to another thing. And it's also hard for the media to come out and just acknowledge that they heard what everyone else heard. This was PolitiFact today. They wrote about this episode. They summarized the words, then they quoted the campaign spin on it, and they pointed out that someone on social media took it as a joke about assassination. And PolitiFact ends with these words. Our only conclusion, Trump's rather elliptical words certainly left room for interpretation. What a warmed over pile of bland oatmeal. PolitiFact, PolitiPap. I do, by the way, have a lot of problems with these fact-checking sites. It's not that they're wrong. It's just that they do everything to prevent themselves from being right. 
But what everyone heard, what everyone knows they heard, and this was no out-of-context line or misquoting in a hacked-together political ad, everyone knows they heard him joking about shooting Hillary Clinton. The Secret Service called him because he joked about shooting Hillary Clinton. You don't have to mention NATO. You don't have to mention Anna Politkovskaya. This is a law about political assassination, and every American knows that's against the law, and every American agrees that that should be against the law. And the other stuff that Trump says, even statements about Mexican rapists or Muslim bans, there's no law against it. Well, maybe with the Muslim ban there is, but maybe there's not. For the most part, what Trump does is he violates societal and campaign norms, but norms change and norms are subjective, and Trump has shown himself in so many ways to not be normal. But the gun guys getting some idea about Hillary is not a norm. It's a law. It's a rule. And those enforcing the rule is the Secret Service and Americans like that rule. It is not a technicality. It is a agreed upon black and white statute and stricture. And I don't think Trump should be arrested. And I don't think he should be fined. But come on, let's at least acknowledge what the guy said. And that's it for today's show is either just producer Mary Wilson or William Henry Harrison, of which it was written, quote, the fervor and animation belong to youth rather than age. The strength of her manly intellect has not suffered in the least. Probably about William Henry Harrison. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, was also reportedly one of the 20,000 whiskey boys on his way to Washington to throw the election to General Jackson. Andy Bowers is chief content officer of the Panoply Network and, like many mugwumps, believes James Blaine, quote, wallows in spoils like a rhinoceros in an African pool. The gist, the best piece of political advice we ever gave. Mike, if you're going to drive the tank, you got to wear the helmet. Doesn't make any sense not to wear the helmet if you're going to drive the tank. Oom Peru, Peru, do Peru, and thanks for listening.